morning. Take your Bible this morning and turn to Nehemiah chapter 4. We're going to continue our study of the book of Nehemiah uh, called Restore. And up to this point in this study, uh, there's been a lot for God's people to celebrate. All right, They've traveled back uh, to Jerusalem under the uh, leadership of Nehemiah, cupbearer to the king. And up to this point, it's kind of been smooth sailing. In the first three chapters, it's been a smooth flight so far, right? Smooth flights are good, right? Uh, flying on a plane and experiencing a smooth flight is a good thing. If you're somebody who flies a lot, you know that you can get a lot done on a smooth flight. All right? You can uh, catch up on some business work. You can uh, catch a movie. You can catch up on some reading. In fact, if a flight is smooth enough, if it's long enough, especially if it's a long flight, uh, you can actually get so caught up in your uh, reading, so caught up in your napping, so caught up in your moving, watching, that for a little bit of time, you actually kind of forget you're even on an airplane. Unless, at some point, you hit something called turbulence. All right, most of us have experienced that, right? You're flying along smoothly, and all of a sudden, planes start shaking, things get rocky. And when you encounter that, uh, if you are mentally in another place there for a moment, that turbulence will very quickly give you a reality check and remind you that you are part of a very intense experience. All right, I was just eating my pretzels and like reading my magazine, and now all of a sudden I'm remembering that I'm in a metal tube flying 500 miles an hour through the air, two miles in the sky. Right? It will put you in touch with that. It's possible that the Israelites up to this point in this narrative have forgotten to an extent that they're involved spiritually in something extremely intense. Uh, last week, Brandon did a great job taking us through chapter 3. Tough text, and he did an excellent job walking us through that about how Nehemiah you know, has gotten into uh, Jerusalem. He's uh, getting to work, uh, leading the efforts on this big project to rebuild uh, the wall around Jerusalem for the glory of God, to preserve the people of God, uh, to make way uh, for the coming of the Son of God that will happen 500 years after this time. And he's rallying the people together. He's assembling a team. He gives people assignments. It's like a big hooray moment, right? It's a big mountaintop moment. Things are going great. Chapter 3. And hey, it'd be great if just chapter 3 ended and that was the end of the story, right? They all live happily ever after. That's how you do it, folks, right? Go live for Jesus. Uh, build your life for the kingdom of God and live happily ever after. But we know that life doesn't work that way. In chapter 4, they hit turbulence. It's called uh, here and throughout God's word, a word that we know it by is opposition. This is one of thousands of places throughout scripture that we're reminded that the Christian life is not lived out on a spiritual playground. In fact, it's actually lived out on a spiritual battlefield. It, it's, it's very intense. We're part of something very intense. And there's moments by God's grace we experience mountaintop moments and God's grace shines on our life. But there are moments when we hit turbulence. There are moments we hit opposition. How do you? It's not a question of if you're going to hit opposition. It's a question of how you're going to respond. And Nehemiah shows us how we're to respond when we meet opposition. Now, if you're familiar with how we do things around here, typically uh, we pick a book, walk through that book verse by verse, uh, expositionally. Um, but there are a couple passages here in Nehemiah that it's difficult to tackle it verse by verse. This is one of them. And so what we're going to do is we're going to read it all the way through. And then uh, we're going to expound the chapter as a whole. So it's going to take us kind of zooming in and zooming out to understand the main point of the text. All right, so stand with your Bibles open. And hang in there. We're going to read the whole thing, all 23 verses. You can do it. 
Verse 1. Now when Sam Ballot heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers, in the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish, finish it up in a day? Will they receive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and said, Yes, they are building if a fox goes up on it, and he will break down their stone wall. Verse 4 is where Nehemiah comes in. Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be blundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that they were repairing, or of the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward, and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we, not, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said that they will not know, talking about the Israelites, enemies talking about the Israelites, they will not know or see until uh, we come along among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall in the open places, I stationed people by their clans with their swords, spears, bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to all the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers and your sons and your daughters and your wives and your homes. Verse 15, when our enemies heard that it was known to us, that was their plan, and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half my servants worked on construction, half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah, who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and the rest of the people, The work is great and widely spread, and we're separated on the wall, far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet rally to us there, our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, Let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor for us. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. Would you have a seat as I pray? <clears throat> Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for a 2,500-year-old journal that we're reading here, written by the hand of a man named Nehemiah, but inspired by your spirit. And so, Lord, I pray that it would help us today. Lord, Nehemiah and the people that we're reading about, they've run the race. They kept their eyes fixed on you. They fought the good fight. And now here we are, Lord. It's our generation's turn. We're the redeemed with air in our lungs and a heart beating in our chest here on this earth that you've called to 
surrender to you as vessels, as your vessels, in order that you might build your kingdom through us. And I pray that we would be faithful vessels. Lord, I pray that we would be faithful servants of you. Lord, I pray that we would lean in in the next little bit and that we'd allow this text to encourage our hearts, to help us to remember we are part of something intense and help us to take this in with a sober, teachable mind and heart. And I pray that you'd use it to conform us more to the image of Christ. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to see how this text shows us two main things concerning the enemy's opposition to kingdom advancement in the world. And the first one is this. We're going to recognize the weapons of the kingdom of darkness. All right, The passage here shows us three age-old tactics or weapons that the enemy used then, that the enemy has used through the ages, and that the enemy is using today to derail Christ's followers who are seeking to advance the kingdom of God. We see the first one in verse 1, and it's the weapon, what we'll call it, the weapon of wounding words, all right? Or words of ridicule is another word that we could use for that. All right, y'all know words hurt, right? Well, we grow up here in sticks and stones can break my bones, words can never hurt me, I'm rubber, you're glue, whatever you say to me, bounce off me and sticks to you, and that's not true. Words do stick, all right? Words do hurt. I was a boisterous young man and broke a lot of bones Right, And I've healed from those. I don't even think about them a whole lot. And yet there are words that people said along the way. You can think right now of words that were spoken into your life, maybe at a very, very young age. And here you are 30, 40, maybe 50 years removed from that moment. And yet those words are still with you. Words are powerful. Words can wound. And one of the tactics, one of the strategies of the evil one is to compile words to be used against disciples. Look at some of the words that are used against the people of God here in verse 2. We have Sam Ballot, who's the leader of this region here. He's an enemy of God, enemy of God's people. He doesn't like what the Jews are doing. He's probably encircling the, the city of Jerusalem, the, the work that they've done on those walls, inspecting their project. And he's, and he's overheard saying, what are these feeble Jews doing? He calls them feeble. He calls them weak. Now, on one hand, he's right. We know that, right? I had somebody one time say, man, I'm not sure about Christianity and the church thing. It feels like a big old crutch. For, I was like, dude, it's more than a crutch, right? It's like a stretcher, a defibrillator. I can't, I can't give you enough analogy. I can't give you enough metaphors to help you understand how much in need we are of God. We, we, we're completely in, in need of him for our whole salvation, for our spiritual life. We are feeble. We are weak. So they're right here on one hand. But yet at the same time, when we're opposed, when we're mocked, as believers, and we get these names hurled at us as insults, it can get in our heads. It can put pressure on us to get off the wall, as it were, to not be so radical in our faith, to stop fighting the good fight with intensity. If students who are in this room right now, at some point, you have felt or you will feel from a professor, some, you will hear some, some wounding words, right? Oh, wait, anybody in here believe in, in creation? Anybody in here believe in intelligent de- design? Oh, someone in the back. Okay, let's walk through why that's not a very intelligent position to hold. Oh, you're pro-life. What, do you hate women? Oh, you believe in marriage between one man and one woman. What, do, do you hate homosexuals? No, I don't. No, don't give me that. You're weak-minded. You're a bigot. Wait, you believe Jesus is the only way to heaven? Really, are, are you that ignorant? Are you that dumb? Are you that unaware of how much we've advanced as a civilization? Now, we live in the South, right? So we are often, uh, there's not a whole lot of people who may hurl insults at us out loud like that, maybe sometimes, right? But Southern hospitality seems to still be somewhat intact. But we know the eye rolls. 
We know the looks. And the enemy will use all of that as a weapon to intimidate the disciple of Christ and try to get them off the wall. Uh, They continue to fire ridicule here. He says, uh, will they restore it for themselves? Will they offer sacrifices as if to say, so he's making fun of their faith. He's saying, what are you going to pray this wall up? Look at you, a bunch of weak, ragtag group of Jews, exiled Jews. I don't see any architects. I don't see builders. You know how big this thing's supposed to be? What is God? You're going to pray to God, your invisible God, and he's going to make this thing. All of this is meant, all this ridicule is meant to intimidate them. To put pressure on God's people to back down. And then I love this part right here. Tobiah, uh, who's this kind of becomes the sidekick of Sam Ballot right here. He chimes in, right? It's like pinky of pinky in the brain, right? He, he jumps in as like this lame sidekick and throws out this little joke that really doesn't land. Look what he says. He's like, yeah, y'all aren't building that wall. If a little fox went up there with its paw, I'd probably break it down. It's so weak. Take that, right? Like, ah, that didn't land, I don't think, the way that you wanted it to. I'm sure Sam Ballot was like, let's not talk anymore. All right, let me take care of the trash talk. Like, if you're going to make it into God's word, make sure it's not for, like, a comment like that, right? <laughs> Here's a lesson for us today. Simple. If you're seeking to represent Christ on your work, in your workplace, on your campus, in your family, if you're really seeking to advance the kingdom of God, if you're really seeking to fight the good fight of faith, if you're really seeking to live radically for Jesus Christ, don't think for a moment you're not going to run into ridicule like this. Don't think for a moment this ridicule is not going to come your way. Well, it doesn't stop there. Next we see when wounding words don't stop the people of God, the enemy's going to ramp things up. And if the enemy actually here, Sam Ballot and these guys, they actually move from just saying words, right, to try to wound them with their words to actually, hey, let's make some plans to, to actually break some bones with sticks and stones. All right, so the second weapon is this. The enemy uses terrorizing threats. The end of verse 7, and then into verse 8, it says, Sembalat and, and these other guys, they get angry and they plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem. And then you go down to verse 11 and you see this rumor is circulating throughout the camp that they have plans to come in and to kill these Israelites and to stop the rebuilding of this wall. So these guys are angry. They want to they not just say words now that will hurt them and stop a movement in the rebuilding of the kingdom of God, but they, now they want, because they're not going to stop their kingdom of God project, they're going to they're kill them in order to stop them. All right? So why are they so angry? Like, what, what's up with these guys? Well, Jerusalem is in, because Jerusalem has been in ruins, you have these kind of surrounding nations that have been a dominating force in this region for some time. They're military strong. Right? They economically like where they're at. They've each marked off different territories that are around where Jerusalem's at, where people are paying taxes to them. And the thought of Jerusalem strengthening is a threat to them. They're insecure. And so they're, they're forming an alliance. All right? So you've got Sam Ballot, the governor of Samaria, who's north of Jerusalem. You've got Tobiah, the leader of the Ammonites, who's to the west. You've got the Arabs, uh, who are mentioned here, who are led by Geshem, who is mentioned in chapter 1. And they're south uh, to the south of Jerusalem. And then you've got fourth, uh, the nation of the Ashdodites, who are to the east of Jerusalem near the Mediterranean. So you literally got Israel that's completely surrounded by opposition, surrounded on every side. Right? Wicked enemy nations that aren't just say, hurling words and insults. Now they're threatening to kill them if they move forward with their efforts to advance the kingdom of God. And I just want to make this point that this is a weapon that continues to be used today. As we sit in relative comfort here in the community center, an air-conditioned room, 
We're experiencing a level of peace. Right now, as I'm talking, there are Christians in the world, mostly on the other side of the world, in certain places, who are facing real physical persecution because of their commitment to Jesus Christ. They're, they're literally facing threats for, towards their life, threats to be killed because they refuse to, st- to, to come down off the wall. That's a real, it's a, it's a reality of our day. We cannot forget that. Lift our brothers up in prayer. Third weapon we see, and this is probably the most effective weapon that the enemy uses, all right, for our lives. Because if he can't get you with the wounding words, if he can't get you with the violent threats, the third thing that he's going to get you with, and it usually happens over time, and this is what we'll call it, is with and through debilitating discouragement. Debilitating discouragement. Now, you see a couple different uh, sources of discouragement here in this text. Now, one, really three of them. One of them is obviously coming through the, from the outside through Sanballat and these enemies. But the most devastating discouragement is actually coming from two other sources. And one of those sources is from the people of God themselves. One of the most devastating sources of discouragement in the lives of the people of God right here, and it continues to be true even to this day, often will come with, from within the camp of the people of God itself. Right? It's the, the way that the people of God are talking about the mission of God. The way that the people of God at times will talk pessimistically and critically and negatively about the mission of God. You say, well, I don't really see where that negativity or that criticism or that that attitude, I don't see that contagious negativity right here in this text. Well, look again at verse 10. It says, In Judah, it was said that the strength of those who bear burdens is failing. There's too much rubble, but ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. All right? So what that is right there, this is really interesting. We don't catch that in the English, but if Hebrew scholars pick up a poetic form right there in verse 10. Now, Hebrew poetry is a lot different than poetry that we're used to, right? Hebrew uh, poetry, usually the lines don't rhyme, all right? There's not a lot of rhyming, right? That's not the way that they like their poetry, their songs. That's not the way that they write it, right? We typically like our poems to rhyme in English, right? We like our songs to rhyme, right? We like our poems to rhyme. Not always, right? Hence the rhyme, roses are red, violets are blue. Some poems rhymes, some poems don't, right? Uh, So most of us like our poems to Rhyme like our songs to rhyme. The Hebrews aren't as concerned about that as much as they are about the meter. All right, so the type of meter in Hebrew poetry will actually indicate to you the mood of the poem and what's trying to be communicated through it. So it's kind of like in our music. There's a reason why the song "Hotel California" is written in a minor key. I think it's B minor. So I can check me on that because it's got haunting lyrics. So you want to you don't want to put that to a happy major key, right? You even see that in the hymns written in the church. You'll, you'll, you can look, go look back at old hymns and you can see how hymns that are dealing with sorrow and gratitude for the sufferings of Christ are written in minor keys. And then you've got, I'll fly away. You don't write that to a minor key, right? It's written in a major key, right? So we, we can kind of relate in that way. But in this poem in verse 10, you have it, it it's, 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 it's a poem that's read or a song that's sung in what scholars call a limping meter, all right? It limps along. It means it's, it's a somber, depressing 
poem right here. And it's being passed around this camp. So you, in verse 10, you have, this, this is a poem that's being passed around this camp. The people of God are grabbing onto it. They're memorizing it. And they're singing it together. All right? So that's what verse 10 is. So they're, they're grabbing their stones. And, and each day they're kind of going to work. They're slinking around. But as they're doing it, they're kind of singing this sad Hebrew country music. Right? As they do it. Like, I'm so tired. We're so, there's so much trouble. We're wasting time. There's just too much trouble. It's over and over and over and over again. One of the worst, most powerfully destructive, most life-sucking, paralyzing sources of cynicism that works against the people of God when it comes to rebuilding the kingdom of God is often ourselves. Filling our ears with negativity. Filling our ears with criticism of leadership. Filling each other's ears with, do we really need to spend money on that? Is that really working? Is it really worth doing this? Is it really worth, if I was in charge, I would do this. I read a pastor in one of the commentaries I was reading this week, who had pastor for 40 years in the same spot, and he says, one of, the, one of the greatest challenges, or he said one of the biggest problems that he saw in the local church that he was pastoring was often too many people wanting to be managers on the wall and too many naysayers. He said, in the seasons where we could get that right, man, you saw God do some amazing things for his glory. So God's people can often be some of the most devastating sources of discouragement. The other source of debilitating discouragement, surprisingly, is from their closest friends and family. Look at verse 12. At the time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. All right, so last week in chapter 3, a lot of those names that you see there in that little Hebrew phone book who are working on the walls, uh, some of those guys weren't living in Jerusalem. They were actually coming from outlying towns, which is really cool that they thought that much of the glory of God that they would come and be part of this rebuild. Well, what you're having here, you're having some of their family, some of their wives, some of their mothers, some of their family members coming into the town because they've heard some of these terrorizing threats, these violent threats that are made against them, and they're filling their ears with discouragement. They're filling their ears with naysaying, like, do you really want to go? Do you really need to be spending your time over in Jerusalem? Do you not, these guys are wanting to kill you. Is it really worth it? What are y'all doing? It's too dangerous. Stay out of there. Stay at home. Tend to your family. Tend to your own farm. Forget about that city. And oftentimes, it's those who are closest to us, but who have not developed a deep sense of the kingdom of God, who will discourage us from doing the work of God. I've seen this happen in student ministry. A parent hears their child feels a call to global missions. And I've seen it happen to where the child is sincerely feeling a call to take the gospel to the ends of the earth no matter what it costs them. And, and the parent begins to fill that child's ear with, hey, you, yeah, you, are you sure you want to do that? Are you sure you want to go to the foreign mission? I'm, I'm, I got two kids. I'm sorry. I got three kids. I'm sorry. I'm not going to lose one of them by some crazy person killing you. Are you going across the, to the other side of the world simply because you love Jesus? Child coming home from camp. Daddy, I, I got saved at camp. I met Jesus at camp. Oh, oh gosh, here we go. All right, just calm down. Don't get all Jesus freakish. Your mom did that. Remember, your mom got into the Jesus thing. Don't be like your mother. And what you find is that young man, that young woman gives up, especially in the area of ministry or area of missions, gives up on a gospel-centered kingdom dream for their life. Just takes the wind right out of their sails. 
These are the kind of weapons that the enemy tries to use to get us off of the wall, tries to get us out of the race. And in a room like this, I feel called to ask this question today. I'm wondering, with this many people in this room, I wonder what weapon the enemy has tried to use to try to kill a kingdom dream in your life. Let me ask you this morning, have some of you given up on a dream? I mean, maybe it was something that God put into your heart years and years ago for a ministry, a call to missions. Have some of you given up on a dream to have a Christ-centered family? Have some of you, are some of you on the verge of giving up your dream to have a solid, God-glorifying marriage that honors Christ? Have some of you almost given up on the possibility of breaking free from that addiction? What have you given up on? What Christ-focused vision for your life are you tempted to quit on? What is it? What is it? Where are you tempted to get down off the wall? I read a visionary leadership book by Andy Stanley several years ago, and this section has stuck with me all these years. I actually went back and tracked it down this past week. And he writes this. Stephanie wants to marry a Christian who will provide spiritual leadership in the home. So she passes up opportunities to go out with non-Christian guys, but her friends, quote-unquote, eventually douse her flames with statements like, there aren't guys out there like that. You're wasting your life away. After a while, Stephanie decides that her friends are probably right. Maybe her standards are too high and unrealistic, so she gives up on that dream. She gives up on that kingdom vision. Ben wants to see his daughter come to faith in Christ and return to a lifestyle keeping with biblical principles, but his friends are constantly filling his ears with things like, hey, leave her alone, man. Hey, kids are different these days. That worked, but for you maybe, but she's got to find her own way in the world. Well, it made sense to Ben, so his vision dies and he gets down off the wall. As a Christian single, Chris was always appalled by the adultery in his office. It appeared nobody was faithful to his wife, and it didn't seem to bother any of them. When Chris got married, he vowed to be different and envisioned a lifestyle of faithfulness to Jenny. But the guys in the office had a different agenda for Chris and determined to bring Chris down to their level. And eventually, Chris believed the lie. Nobody is faithful anymore. And at a conference in Detroit, Chris gave up on that godly vision for his life. And what he didn't realize is that in doing so, he extinguished Jenny's vision for their life as well. Does any of that sound familiar? What have you been tempted to give up on? What have you been tempted to quit on? Get it. What is it? And I want you to see this. Whatever it is, it's not an accident that we're in this passage this morning. It's not an accident that right here in front of us is a 2,500-year-old journal of a cupbearer named Nehemiah trying to help us to understand something. And if you lean in, you can to recognize that the pressure to get down off of that wall... And to give up a good fight. That is a good fight. It's the right fight to fight. And to give up on that, the pressure to give up on that is coming from an enemy who hates Jesus and hates you because you belong to Jesus and will do whatever it takes, will fire whatever weapon he has to fire at you to make you ineffective in the kingdom of God. He knows he can't touch your soul. He's on a leash, but there's still power there temporarily in the realm of the earth in which we live. And his goal for your life, because he knows he can't touch your soul, is to make you ineffective. To back you down off of that wall. And I'm here to tell you, don't give up the fight. It's a good fight to fight. What I love about God's word is it doesn't just point out the weapons that are coming at us. 
It doesn't just pull us into the reality of that spiritual warfare and what those weapons on the other side are. It shows us how to fight that good fight. It shows us the weapons that that we can pick up and fight with. So the second part of this message is fight with the weapons of the kingdom of God. First weapon is found in verse 4 and 5, and it will come to you at no surprise if you've been paying attention at all in this series, and it's this earnest prayer. So let's roll back the tape a little bit. Sam Ballot and Tobiah, they've been ridiculing Nehemiah. And what's his first move? What's his first move once again? He doesn't talk trash back to them. He doesn't talk to them at all. He talks to God. Now, his prayer here can be a little confusing because it almost sounds like the Sons of Thunder moment that Jesus has with some of his disciples that he rebukes them for. They just want to call the wrath of God out on heaven and just start zapping everybody. But this is an imprecatory prayer. You see this in the Psalms. We do, yes, pray for our enemies to be saved. And in the age of grace, we pray that God would work on the heart of the greatest enemy of the cross and turn him into a friend of God. And God can do that. And yet we can also simultaneously, as people of justice, who long for Christ's justice to fill the earth, the heavens and the earth, we can at the same time pray that he will justly deal with anything throughout all of eternity that determines to stay opposed to him and his kingdom. And I believe that's what Nehemiah is doing there. But the main point is this, Nehemiah prays. When things ramp up, Nehemiah prays. In verse 8, things ramp up more. What does he do? He prays. Our first weapon against opposition is prayer. That's not, and maybe you tuned out because sometimes you hear it this way, that's not just good little churchy advice this morning. That's very simple, but it's profoundly Powerful Prayer is a real, ancient, eternal weapon at the disposal of believers that has been employed by Christians throughout all the ages that works. It's spiritually, explosively powerful. When it's picked up in the life of the disciple and employed with discipline. Do you think it's an accident that the Holy Spirit keeps bringing this up? Do you think, it's a, do you think the Holy Spirit may be trying to teach us something as a church? As we continue to see this issue of prayer come up over and over and over again, it keeps coming up. I believe it's absolutely here for a reason because too many of us are seeking to live the Christian life, seeking to fight the good fight, trying to face opposition with the weapon of prayer in its holster. And it just doesn't work. We're too busy. We're a busy generation. Some of us can't make it through a service like this without looking at our phones. We're distracted. I'm with you. We're a busy people who find it difficult to sit still and to pay attention to God, to pay attention to His Word, to spend time in prayer. We're not good at sitting still. We're busy. Listen to Psalm 46, which is a psalm that actually is written. You're going to recognize what I'm about to read because it's at the end of the psalm. But it's actually a psalm that's, that's written by the psalmist when he was in trouble, when opposition was coming at him found in the first verse you see evidence for that and here's what god says at the end of the psalm here that is written by someone who's facing opposition be still and know that i am god be hey busy believers busy be believers be still and know that i am god and the implication that jumped out to me i have not seen this before in all the years that i've studied this Be still and know that I'm God. You know what that's saying there? Is that evidently there's some things about God that I'm only going to be able to know if I sit still. Be still and know that I'm God. 
There are certain things about God that I'm only going to be able to know if I learn to sit still and stop pressing ahead and staying busy and trying to solve everything in my own strength. If we don't sit still, there's things about God. There's an understanding about God, how God would have me to fight the good fight that I'll never know. In the face of opposition, we got to learn to pause and to pray and then proceed. We like to do it backwards, don't we? We like to proceed. We like to plan. We like to get into action and then kind of invite God in on that and pray that he'll bless it. The first weapon is prayer. And then the second weapon is everyday perseverance. Right? So that's the order that Nehemiah gives us here as to how we employ these weapons. We pray and then we get to work. And God's people are going to need some encouragement to get to work because they're weary. And it's understandable as to why they're weary at this point right here, right? We would be weary too. We're, they're human, all right? So they're weary because of all the opposition coming at them. And they're weary because of the work. And they're weary because they're halfway through it. Did you pick that up as we walked through it? That they're, they're kind of at the halfway mark. And the halfway mark's discouraging because you, you realize you look back and you see what you've done, but you realize how much work it took to get that done. And then you look forward and realize, I'm only halfway done. That's why we need halftime speeches. Because halfway through things, we get weary. We need some encouragement. I sense this like when I go on long road trips. All right? Especially when I was a young dad. I had these dreams and romanticized what our family road trips would be like. We have a family. We're going to go on a road trip across the country. It's going to be wonderful. I mean, I remember in some of those first few road trips with our family, man, I was all hyped up, right? I just energized, had this burst of excitement, right? I got the car gassed up and washed up and cleaned out and got the oil changed, got the right air in the tires, got the right music ready, right? Got all the videos downloaded on all the tablets, make sure everybody's good to go, right? We're ready to roll, got the snacks, got the caffeine, we're ready to go. I mean, we're pulling up on the 295 in Jacksonville, heading out of town, and everybody, man, the car's full of joy, right? We're all together. Life is a highway. I'm going to ride it. Like seven hours later, we're going to kill each other in this car. Get me out of this car. I'm going to kill somebody. Why did we decide to drive through Atlanta at 5 p.m. in the afternoon? It's like, get me out of this car. Why is it so hot in here? Why does it smell like beef jerky? Roll up the window. No, you can't go to the bathroom. You just went. And it's often, man, it's like, can we just get this trip over and just remind me to never do this again? And we do it again. And it's often at the halfway point, man, that we get weary. You know that. Whether it's a project, whether it's a trip, we start getting weary. That is why teams need halftime speeches. They need somebody to get up in their grill and to remind them what they're doing, who they are, and just sometimes encouragement to get back to work. And here is Nehemiah's halftime speech. part of his, his halftime speech right here. He's, he's basically, hey, look at me. He's like a coach stepping in right here. Hey, we're going to pray. We're going to pin on God. This isn't in our own strength, but we're going to get back to work. God's given us an assignment, and we're going to get back to work. We're going to put our attention heavenward. We're going to fill up with the strength that we need. We're going to depend on God, but we're going to get back to the work that God's called us to. We're going to pray. We're going to persevere. We're going to pray. We're going to plan. We're going to pray. We're going to post guard. We're going to pray, then we're going to take another brick tomorrow, and we're going to put it into place. We're going to pray, and we're going to keep on working, and we're not going to grow weary of doing good. And they're modeling for us this spirit-powered grit. 
Like what it looks like to just keep moving while at the same time keeping that blessable posture of dependence on God in prayer. We see it in verse 9. He hears about that threat. What does he do? He prays and he says, let's get to work. Take action. Like he takes prudent action. He puts guards into place. That's not a sign of like weak faith. Like he prays and depends on God and knows God's going to protect him but also knows God's given him a brain. Like let's put some guards in place. Let's keep ourselves safe. Look at the audible he calls in um, verse 16. He says, from, I love this. He says, from that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held spears and shields and bows and coats of mail. And then verse 17, those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored with work with one hand and with a weapon in their other hand. Look at that perseverance right there. Amen. Like, can you... Like, think about that. Think about, like, painting. Like, you got a project to paint a building or a house, and you got a paint roller in one hand and a Glock in the other hand. That's perseverance right there. Like, we got something to paint right here. Like, I'll keep myself safe, but we got work to do. That's what he's saying right here. We got a wall to build. They're taking wise, defensive action, but they never stop working. They're praying, planning, making adjustments, organizing these guys into different shifts. They, hey, they take the steps to stay safe, but they never stop working. And we learn something here about what it means to have some Holy Spirit gospel grit. There's a calling on your life, disciple, yes, to pray, to never stop depending on God, but to work, to get to work, to persevere, to pray, to recognize it's not my own strength, but to get back to work. And here's here's how I want to apply it. I can't cover every scenario this morning, but some of you are like, man, pastor, my marriage needs some work. You know, it kind of feels like that wall looks. Like I can look back and see some things, but man, we got a long way to go. And it's kind of overwhelming. I, I mean, our, our marriage really needs some work. I feel the attacks. And I, maybe you're like, and I don't want to give up on that Christ-centered dream for my marriage. Well, let me, I just want to encourage you this morning. One, pray. You need to turn your attention heavenward. You need to pray that God will intervene. And he's a God who raised Jesus from the dead. And he can, hey, he can raise that marriage up. And he can strengthen it and restore it. You need to pray to him. Recognize that the strength comes from him. But you need to get to work. Fight for your marriage. It may involve you making plans for counseling. It may involve you developing some kind of plan to make sure that you're in the Bible together, that you're praying together. But fight, pursue her, fight for your marriage. Remember how you fought for her? Like when you first started dating? Remember how hard you pursued her? Remember how she was all you could think about? I remember, I'm going to share this. I'm running out of a little time, but this is going to be worth it. You ready? I remember when me and Rebecca were dating, and I knew she was the woman that I wanted to marry, and I believe God wanted me to marry, you know, and I just, you know, needed her to understand that, right? So I'm pursuing her, I'm dating her, and it's a, we, we would do the silliest things, right, to get the attention of the one that we love and we want to spend the rest of our life with, and I remember I was up at college i was up at a bible college in greenville south carolina studying for ministry and she's down here in jacksonville and she kind of came up we were a couple semesters removed she kind of came up and joined me a couple semesters later but we were apart for a while and that's back when calling cards we try to like keep in touch long distance and i just try to find some creative ways to communicate my love for her and there's a video out there somewhere of me um and i'm standing on a desk in my dorm room and i can't i think it was like a camcorder and i mailed the video back but I'm standing on 
a desk in a dorm room. I've got cut-off jean shorts. I've got a tank top on. I've got a cowboy hat on. I've got cowboy boots on. And i got a guitar singing Randy Travis's, I'm going to love you forever. <laughs> True story. Some of y'all want to see that. Four, word, four words, over my dead body. Here's the point. Why would I work so hard to do something so stupid? Because I loved her. I wanted her. I pursued her. And it still takes work. It takes work to write the letters. It takes work to take her out on dates. It takes work to serve each other like Jesus serves us. It takes work to stay in the Word together. It takes work to pray. Yes, we depend on God, but it takes everyday perseverance of working hard. In order to experience a Christ-centered marriage. Some of you dream of having a Christ-centered home. Yes, pray for your kids. Lift them up to Jesus. Give them back to God. But then get to work. Develop a plan. Show some everyday perseverance. Work into the daily rhythms of your life. Gospel conversations. The Bible. Prayer. Fight for your family. Fight to ensure parents grandparents that a day you you fight for this that a day doesn't go by that they don't remember their mama or their daddy or their grandparents talking to them about jesus when they're in your house i don't have time to hit every scenario but you get the point whatever that burden is that god's placed on your heart whatever the problem is whatever needs to be rebuilt whatever you're dreaming about pray about it yes depend on god for it never stop that but do something about it Pray and persevere. Don't grow weary in doing good. All right. So there's two more weapons that's going to take me like seven minutes to go through. So hang tight. At times, it's going to be hard to persevere. And that's why we need this third weapon. And it's this empowering partnership. We see that in verses 18 through 20. We're not called to go at it alone. It says, and each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread. And we're separated on the wall, far from each other uh, in that place where you hear the sound of the trumpet rally to us there. So they're working, they're praying, they're depending on God. They're, They're working hard, but they're vulnerable. They're spread out, right? So they're getting the work done, but there's these gaps where the enemy can come in side the walls and destroy their work and destroy them so nehemiah he gets a trumpet player says hey mr trumpet player this is what i want you to do we're going to kind of go around and we're going to surveillance everything each day you're going to stay with me and if at any point i see enemies trying to come in into these different openings into the wall i want you to run over there and i want you to blow the trumpet and everybody else that's going to be your signal drop what you're doing run over to that spot and we're going to be better together we're going to lock arms and we're going to fight shoulder to shoulder so that together not alone we're fighting So that together, not alone, we're facing opposition. So that together, as a team, we can overcome the enemy and encourage each other to keep fighting. Don't get off the wall. Keep fighting. In a way, what that trumpet call is is doing, it's a rallying call for community, for partnership in God's work, to come close together because we're stronger and we're better together. And that's, that's the picture for us, reminding us that the third weapon that God has for us to employ is partnership it's community in church listen you may not know how to blow a tr- you may not know how to play a trumpet but you know how to send a text message you may not know how to play a trumpet but you know how to make a phone call 
You may not know how to play a trumpet, but you know how to, to open up in your Bible Connect group and let some people know there, hey, I'm experiencing some difficulty. I need y'all. I need to link arms with some people. I need y'all to pray for me. I feel isolated. I feel tempted to get off the wall. I feel this kingdom dream is dying, and I need, I need, you, I need you guys to come close, and I need you to pray for me. Listen, church, this church, which is not the chairs, it's not the building, it's the people in here. This church is much more than just a, a little fan club that you got that claps for you when you get baptized and you just kind of move on and we smile each, at each other on Sundays. Amen. Right? We're partners on the wall. And it's a gift from God and it's a weapon that he's given us. I told you to be fast. Last one, eternal perspective. Look at verse 14. And this is the best moment in Nehemiah's halftime speech right here. I love this. This is an epic moment. He stands up in verse 14, and what does he say? He says, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers and your sons and your daughters and your wives and your homes. That's good. Right? This is the moment where, if this is Nehemiah the movie, this is where like Russell Crowe wins the Oscar, all right? This is the speech. But what he's doing is very, very important. They needed their perspective reset. He's saying, look to God. Look to God. Stop looking at Sam Ballot. Stop looking at little Tobiah over there with his little trash talk. Want to be trash talk. Stop looking at all the work that needs to be done and look at God who is great and who is awesome. And then he ends in verse 20. There he says, our God will fight for us. What is he doing? He's turning their attention to God. He's taking their perspective off of their problems and the size of their problems and onto the size of their God and his power. And believer, you need to see something this morning. God is bigger than your opposition. God is bigger than your brokenness. God is bigger than your frustrations. God is bigger than people who talk bad about you. God is bigger than the trouble in your marriage. God is bigger than the trouble in your home. God is bigger than you. God is bigger than death itself. Stay focused on him. Stay on the wall. What cast the fear out of those Israelites on that wall Building that kingdom of God, fighting that good fight 2,500 years ago is what will keep you on the wall this morning. It's a fresh perspective of God. A God who, yes, is great and who is awesome, but who with an equal amount of intensity loves you more than your mind could ever begin to fathom. You say, how can I know that? Look to the cross. Look to the cross where he already, he already fought and beat the greatest opposition in your life. It's defeated greatest opposition in your life is sin and if you're in Christ it's already been been defeated it's an obstacle that you couldn't tackle it's an obstacle that you couldn't overcome it's a it's an obstacle that you couldn't climb over and when we needed a God to fight for us on the cross he did just that the greatest motivation for you to stay on that wall and to keep fighting is to keep your eyes on the cross, remembering that the Lord has defeated your greatest enemy that your sins are forgiven that you're in the sovereign grip of God and that one day another trumpet's going to sound. And Jesus is going to come back and his justice is going to pour out once and for all. And he's going to establish his kingdom for good. We know how the story ends. We're on the winning side. That's why we don't have to be afraid. Because when the plane shakes and things get rocky, we know who's flying the plane. Our great and awesome God, keep your eyes on him. Look at what he's done. Look at what he promises to do. Don't get off the wall. You have a God who fights for you. 
If your marriage needs a fresh touch from God this morning, don't get off the wall. Pick up the weapons that God has given you. Don't get off the wall. You've got a God who fights for you, and he's given you weapons to fight with. Fight. Is it your family? Like, you have this dream of your home being a Christ-centered place. Don't get off the wall. Pick up these weapons. Some of you, if that's you, you're a grandparent or you're a parent, like, maybe you need to come to the altar this morning and bring with you in your heart your kids and your grandkids and to pick up that weapon of prayer. There's no parent, there's no grandparent that wants to see their grandson, granddaughter, daughter or son go to hell. Don't get off the wall. Don't stop fighting. Pick up those weapons this morning and then pray and then get to work. Keep putting those bricks into place. Whatever it is, stay on the wall. Pray, press on, partner up. Hey, keep your eyes up. Stay on the wall. You know why? Because Jesus is still out of that grave. He's still on his throne. And he's coming back again one day. And in the meantime, we're staying on the wall. We're not giving up. We're praying. We're fighting. We're working. We're partnering. And we're keeping that correct perspective. Let's pray.